Daily Gazette Company presents the Parting Shots Podcast. Now, here's your host, Daily Gazette Sports Editor, Ken Shot. Thank you, Scott Geezy, and welcome to the Parting Shots Podcast. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe today. Thanks for joining me from the Parting Shots Podcast Studio in snowy Schenectady, New York. We have another great show for you, focusing on baseball. I'll speak with a former colleague of mine from the York Daily Record years, Barry Sparks. He wrote an interesting book called The Next Mickey Mantle, from Tom Trush to Bryce Harper. The hot stove was burning at the winter meetings in San Diego. The New York Mets gained the Cy Young Award winner, but lost a franchise icon pitcher. Our friend Newsday Mets beat writer Tim Healy was out there to uh, cover everything, and now he joins us to discuss all the transactions. Tim, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, you're kind of busy in San Diego and didn't get a chance to really enjoy things, I guess, right? You're busy in San Diego and busy in the week or so since I've been back. The Mets have just been nonstop making moves. So it's been a, a very eventful and exciting offseason for them, absolutely. Yeah, let's start with the, the Cy Young Award winner they signed in Justin Verlander coming off a World Series championship with Houston. Uh, 40 years old, but he, he looked sharp in the, during the 2022 season. And uh do you like the signing? I really like the signing. I, I think in a way that the Mets probably would never admit publicly that Justin Verlander could have been and should have been their plan A coming into the offseason all along. Because I, I like Verlander for two years a lot more than I would have liked Jacob DeGrom for three years, never mind the five that he got from the Rangers. So, as you mentioned, Verlander is old, but as you also mentioned, he is still excellent. Reigning Cy Young winner in the American League. So, there is some risk there, just like there was risk in signing Max Scherzer a year ago, but the Mets decided or, or took the educated guess that if Verlander is going to fall off, that it won't be in the next year or two. Yeah, especially Verlander had coming off of Tommy John surgery, so I mean, he basically has a, a new arm, and so he 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 looked good. And unfortunately, he looked good in Game uh, Six against the my Phillies in the World Series. So, uh, but uh, I mean, is there a concern though? I mean, with Scherzer does did have some issues with his health, and, and he's thirty eight, and Verlander, as you said, yeah, for, you, know, you know, they're thinking that he won't fall off next year, but that's a lot of money tied up in two guys that are. And, and years past would have been past their prime. Yeah, it, it's a ton of money. Eighty-five going on ninety million dollars for two pitchers who are in the twilight of their career, let's say. So, like, yeah, there's definitely risk there in, in the range of possible outcomes. There is a version of this where both guys start to look and pitch their age, and that would be a mess for the Mets. Um, not just those guys, but Carlos Carrasco is pretty old. Jose Quintana is pretty old. Kodai Senga, who is coming over from Japan, isn't old as old. He's only 30 years old. But he is not a proven commodity in the majors. So um, the Mets could have an excellent rotation, but that's far from a sure thing. Yeah, of course. I mean, they lost Tejon Walker to the Phillies, uh, Chris Bassett to the Blue Jays, as you mentioned, Senga uh, coming aboard. So what what is this staff going to look like uh, in 2023? It's going to look a lot different. It is in, in some order, it's going to be Scherzer, Verlander, Senga, Carrasco, and Quintana. So that's three, 60% of the rotation is going to be new guys, and the only holdovers are Scherzer and Carrasco. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, of course, they before the winter meetings, they signed Edwin Diaz to a new deal, and we're going to hear more of that trumpet song. <laughs> uh, was that a good deal for for the Mets? Um, you know, it's an interesting deal. I, I give them credit because they identified a guy that they wanted and acted decisively. I think $100 million, or in this case $102 million, for a reliever is a lot. But the Mets are in a position where if it backfires a little bit, then it will not be financially crippling for them because Steve Cohen has so much money and is comfortable spending so much money on the player payroll. So it's like the other moves, there's definite risk there because Edwin Diaz, realistically speaking, will probably never be quite as good as he was in 2022. But the Mets knew what they wanted and went and got it, so... Power to him, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're going to have a payroll of about $350 million, which means they're going to have to pay a luxury tax. But as you said, Cohen has the money and he's willing to spend it. And I think Mets fans probably appreciate that because maybe past owners probably would not have spent the money. Definitely. It's, it's, it's funny to think about what the Mets would look like right now under past ownership or under different ownership because we can state pretty confidently that it would not look like this. Uh, Steve Cohen is is just pouring a ton of money into it. Um, It's not a long-term plan, of course. They, you know, are working on developing the farm systems and I fully expect the payroll to drop significantly a few years from now. But for now, this is their uh, solution. Well, let's talk about the guy who is no longer a Met, uh, and maybe arguably could say the second most influential pitcher in Mets history, you know, be behind Tom Seaver and Jacob DeGrom. He, he, he's been a good, a great pitcher for them. Of course, he's been injury prone. You mean you sounded shocked that he got a five-year deal from the Rangers? I mean, the Mets. Were, I guess the Mets were not going to go there at all. I was floored that he got a five years five year deal. I was floored that he got one hundred and eighty five million dollars. And no, the Mets, the Mets were not going to come anywhere close. And that is absolutely the right decision for them. For Jacob Degrom, for as good as he is when he's healthy, it's hard to really count on him for anything because it was three straight seasons of a variety of injuries. He hasn't thrown even a hundred innings in a season since two thousand and nineteen. So it's it's. You know, the Rangers are trying to win and trying to get people in their shiny, new, expensive ballpark. So for them, they deemed it worth the risk. But I think the Mets made the right call there. Um, You know, there's definitely an emotional piece of it for Mets fans seeing DeGrom go. But a week and a half, two weeks later, I think everybody's pretty much over it, given the additions the Mets have made since. I mean, you mentioned the Mets fans being... Did they take the social media and just you know, were they were they more upset with the Grom or more upset with the Mets? Uh, I think the Grom, especially after his introductory news conference in Texas, when he uh, talked about wanting to win a World Series and that's why he's here, which is just sort of a sort of a ridiculous thing to say when you left a team that won hundred that won one hundred and one games last year yeah. and is. Uh, spending to put itself in a position to win every year. So um, sort of just empty words from De- from DeGrom there. Um, so I, I think, honestly, a lot of Mets fans, at least as far as I can tell, uh, turned on DeGrom after seeing that. Well, of course, they'll play each other this season uh, with the new uh, scheduling format, so it'll be interesting to see. I, I, I don't, I don't, off the top of my head, I don't know if, um, if I'm 
Texas is coming to New York this year or not. But, uh, yeah, whenever that happens, you know, DeGrom's not going to get a, a hero's welcome. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I would, I would think, I would think he'll get cheered because he did accomplish a lot here. And as you said, he's probably the second best pitcher in the history of the franchise behind Tom Seaver. So the Rangers come to City Field in August, I believe, late August. So that's going to be an interesting time. Yeah, I mean, you, you attended that press conference down in Arlington. What was it? What was it like there? I mean, obviously Texas is probably happy they got a, an ace pitcher. Yeah, it was sort of it was it was striking to me because Degrom seemed happy in a way that he had not often been in recent years with the Mets. Um, you know, he has a way of turning on the smile and charm when the camera's on when he's speaking after any given start he makes. But overall, he did not seem like a happy camper with the Mets. Um, of course, he was injured a lot of that time, so you know what is there to be happy about? Yeah. I guess. Um, but he, he was uh, he was giddy with the Rangers, and of course they gave him 185 million reasons to be giddy. That's so right, yeah. I, I I understand that. <laughs> um, but it was it was an interesting uh, it was an interesting scene for sure. You said he what you said the injuries probably didn't make him uh, made him unhappy. You think there's other reasons why he may have been unhappy with the the Mets organization? Uh, who knows what's going on inside a player's head. Um, you know, I, I try not to speculate on anyone's true motives, but uh, I, I don't think he was particularly interested in staying in New York. Hmm. Maybe he can't handle the pressure of the big city? Well, I think he proved that he could handle the pressure. He was as good as it gets for a couple of years there. Um, so I, I, I don't know what it was other than he seemed ready to move on. And frankly, I think the same is true for the Mets. Yeah. Well, the Mets just had a press conference on Thursday uh, announcing the signing of Brandon Nimmo. I mean, is that a good signing to keep him with around? I'm sorry, what was that? Brandon Nimmo. I mean, was that a good signing to keep him with the Mets? Oh, it was. It was a. It was a critical signing coming into the offseason with Degrom, Diaz, Nimmo, Bassett, some others. I, to me, Nimmo was very much their most important free agent. If they did not sign him. The other available center fielders were, uh, let's say, not quite at Nimmo's level. Mm-hmm. They were going to have a hard, hard time signing somebody or trading for somebody who would be able to replace him. They didn't have anybody in-house who could do what he does. So, like with Diaz, I give the Mets even more credit for the Nimmo signing because they realized what they had to do, and they did it. I did not expect Nimmo to get eight years uh, $162 million was also a little more than I thought. I thought he'd end up in the 145, 150 range. So I guess it's not too, too much more than that. Um, but, you know, he, we talk about players who seem like the kind of guys who should spend their whole career with one team. That's why, for example, it was so striking to see Freddie Freeman leave the Braves last winter or why Clayton Kershaw obviously is always going back to the Dodgers. Um, DeGrom, DeGrom to me, was not one of those guys, but Nimmo now especially is. You know, this contract is going to take until age 37. He was talking at his press conference about, you know, the the goal or daydream of one day having his number retired along with the greatest players in franchise history. So there's some gaudy stuff that gets talked about, which makes sense when you're talking about the second biggest Mets contract ever. So it's, uh, you know, it's going to be a lot of fun to watch Brandon Nimmo for the next eight years. What about the Elf Studio War yesterday? 
was a pretty, pretty sweet elf suit. I, uh, I'm a little jealous of it. I'm not going to lie. Uh, he, he, he definitely pulled it off excellently at the uh, kids' holiday party the Mets had yesterday, having some kids from Queens in for lunch and presents and whatnot. Yeah, I saw, there was a picture of uh, it was a front ran on the Associated Press, and I see you know Buck Showalter sitting on Santa's lap, turned out to be uh, Todd's. You know, Buck looks like yeah. a thrill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think they offered uh, Buck the position of Santa for yesterday's event, but he politely declined. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, overall, how would you grade the Mets uh, the moves they made the last couple weeks? I think you have to give them an A. I, you know, I, I did not expect them to spend at this level. Uh, but when you think about what a best case scenario of an off season looks like, this has got to be close to it. They got the best center fielder available, the best closer available, probably the best pitcher available in Verlander. Uh, they added Senga, who is, you know, if you count him as a mid tier starter. You can't say he's the best mid-tier starter available because we don't really know what he is, mm-hmm. but he's 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 really interesting and is probably well worth fifteen million dollars a year. So add add Robertson as a late inning replacement for say Adam Adovino. So uh, they've basically they, they've checked a lot of boxes. They have not checked all of them, but with you know a little less than two months to go now until pitchers and catchers report, they've they've made a ton of progress and they're they're looking pretty good. What's that the, said, yeah. that said. I'm not sure that they're the, they're the best team in the division, so it's going to be a really interesting NL East. What's we'll talk about that in a second. What what do you think they need more uh, before they get to spring training? They need probably at least one. They need at least one more reliever. I would say two, and they need uh, they, they don't need it's sort of they need a fourth outfielder type of guy. I'm not sure what caliber or what form that is going to take whether it's a classic speed and defense kind of guy or whether they want somebody who can bat more regularly in an outfield rotation or in in the DH spot. So they have some flexibility there. They are looking at adding a hitter, um, but I'm I'm just not sure what caliber of hitter it's going to be. As you mentioned, the NL East is going to be – Exciting again this year. You know the Phillies winning the National League, you know coming from the the wild card slot. Uh, they signed Trey Turner, which uh, a big signing for them. They, they won't have Bryce Harper uh, for until at least mid season as he recovers from uh, Tommy John surgery. But uh, and yeah, they also added uh, Tejon Walker from the Mets uh, to, the, to the rotation. Uh, I'm not very. I'm not. I, I mean, Dave Roberts to me did not have anything left in the tank when he got acquired by the Phillies. So that's not a great loss, in my opinion. So, and of course, the Braves are the Braves. So, I mean, you're looking at three teams. I mean, I think we can discount Miami and Washington. They'll be, uh, you know, yeah. feeders. Uh, yeah. How exciting is this NL East going to be this year? It's going to be really exciting when you look at the Braves, the Phillies, and the Mets. They could finish in any order in the top three, and I would not be surprised. The Braves, to me, are the team to beat until proven otherwise. The Mets almost proved otherwise this past year, but uh, blew it right at the end. So uh, the Braves, as the five-time defending division champions, uh, you know, might will be my take, my my prediction for you know, who will win the division. But the Phillies were hot in the second half last year, made it to the World Series, as we all saw. So what version of the Phillies are we going to see in 2023? Probably an even better version, because I really, really like the Trey Turner signing. 
Yeah. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun to watch him. I'm glad he's back in the NL East. And then the Mets, of course, as we've discussed, have made all sorts of moves and should be right there in the thick of things. So, you know, it's going to be, as, as, an, as a neutral third party who watches the Mets a lot, I think it's going to be an awful lot of fun to, to see how that develops. How different is it going to be this year with, you know, we, don't, we have, a, in effect, a balanced schedule where for the first time ever, all the teams are going to play each other. We're going to, you know, it's not 19 games against the division opponents anymore. That gets reduced. We're going to see, everybody's going to play uh, interleague games. Uh, we're going to see all the American League, National League teams, all the American League teams. It's, it's going to be a different world in 2023, plus the rule changes with the pitch clock. Yeah, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of changes are coming. The balanced schedule, I'm generally in favor of, mostly because I want to see Mike Trout and Shohei Otani every year. Mm-hmm. So I, I like that. But you're right; it is going to be a little funky next year without as much in division play. Um, the rule changes, the pitch clock, I love. I think that can really move the game along. The pickoff limits, I think, are going to be interesting. I think we're going to see a lot more stolen bases with that rule and the slightly larger bases. Um, and then the shift ban, I, I don't I don't love it, but I get it. And I am hopeful that it will lead to a more fun style of baseball that, that comes about with more athletic infielders and uh, line drives ripped through the right side that actually turn into hits. Yeah, I, 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 I hated the shift. I'm, I'm old school. I go back to the – I'm a 70s guy, and I mean right. I, I want pitchers hitting. I mean, that's how – uh, of course, nowadays you lost me on that one. <laughs> well, 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 of course, back then pitchers hit. In, back then, they could actually hit. Like they actually yeah. didn't. Yeah, they so actually it. didn't. Statistically, they were still terrible. Not, not a lot of people realize that. So it's up to me to remind them. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's going to be it's going to be interesting off season. And, and uh, well, one last question for you. Um, yeah, obviously the Yankees re-signed Aaron Judge. How much were the Mets heavily involved in talking with Judge? No, I don't think so. And I think that's the right move for them because he wasn't a great fit for their roster. With a player of that caliber, you can always make it work if you want to, but I did not get the sense that the Mets really wanted to because coming off the season that Judge had, whatever contract he got was going to be an obvious overpay. Mm -hmm. The the Yankees basically had to resign him. I understand why the Giants wanted him so bad. I, I would have seen the sense in it for them as well. But, you know, $40 million a year for nine years is just way too much for a guy who just had the best season of his life and is never going to do that again. So, um, you know, the Mets rightfully were not particularly involved there. Well, Tim, I appreciate it as always uh, talking Mets baseball with you. And uh, I I thank you as we get towards the end of the year. Thank you for coming on the podcast. One of these days we're going to have to meet uh, somewhere and just uh, introduce myself to you. And, uh, and, uh, you know, we'll we'll chat. uh, And we'll do this again uh, in 2023 as we get closer to the season. Sounds good to me. Thanks for having me. Uh, Tim, thanks. Uh, Merry Christmas to you and uh, and everyone at Newsday and, uh, and your family as well. Right back at you. Thank you. All right, nice. Tim Healy. Uh, Coming up, I'll talk to Barry Sparks about his book, The Next Mickey Mantle, from Tom Trash to Bryce Harper. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast. Hi, this is Daily Gazette reporter Shenandoah Greer. I hope you and your family have a wonderful holiday season and a prosperous and healthy 2023. What's your favorite high school sports memory? A late inning rally? 
a game-winning shot, a photo finish. Maybe it's a pep rally or a pregame ritual. Maybe it's the euphoria of a late-night bus ride home after a hard-fought win. Maybe it's having pizza with teammates after the game. Now, imagine if it never happened at all. School sports need your help. With budgets getting tighter, it's more than the games that are on the line. It's all the traditions, the community pride, the culture of your hometown high school, plus all those memories that are on the line, too. What can you do? It's simple. Buy a ticket when you can. Go to a game. Take the whole family. Let's do everything we can to keep those cherished school sports memories alive. This message presented by the New York State Public High School Athletic Association and the New York State Athletic Administrators Association. Hi, this is Daily Gazette reporter Chad Arnold. I would like to wish you a happy holiday season and a great 2023. Welcome back to the podcast. My next guest is a former colleague of mine from the York Daily Record. He has written in a fascinating book called The Next Mickey Mantle, from Tom Tresh to Bryce Harper. Uh, please welcome Barry Sparks. Barry, it's been a long time since we've chatted. Uh, thank you for coming on and uh, looking forward to this chat. I mean, we go back, oh, 30 years at least or so. <laughs> A long way, Ken, and uh, and I, I'm I'm uh, glad to be on your podcast today, and yeah, it's uh, nice to reconnect. Yeah, of course, I want to mention you worked at the other paper in town, New York. <laughs> well, you know, you got to do what you got to do. That's true. That's true. That's true. So, I mean, let's talk about this book, the, uh, the search uh, for the next Mickey Mantle from Tom Trester, Bryce Harper. What inspired you to write this book? Well, Ken, I've been a baseball fan for more than sixty years. And when I was 13, I remember Tom Tresh won the Rookie of the Year in 1962. And it was right after that that I started reading articles about, well, is Tom Tresh going to be the next Mickey Mantle? And, you know, after Tom Tresh, there were a number of other players I read, you know, is he going to be the next Mickey Mantle? And I wondered why many of these guys did not fulfill their potential and were they realistic uh, in, in tabbing them as the next Mickey Mantle? So, you know, I, I wanted to know, uh, did they really have the ability? Did they get a fair shake? Um, were they managed correctly? Um, what were their weaknesses? And did the pressure of being the next Mickey Mantle just crush some of them. And, uh, you know, in the past, I would read an, an article about some of these guys, and it would just be a cursory paragraph or two, but it didn't answer the questions that I was asking. It's like, why did they, did they not succeed or not succeed to the level that other people thought they should? Mm -hmm. So that's what I did. I, I tried to find the answer to those questions and I feature 16 players in the book and I read about 1500 articles and researching the players. And, in uh, in all the cases, I pretty much explain why those players didn't fulfill their potential for most part. There are a couple that will probably end up being in the hall of fame. That's uh, Bryce Harper or Mike Trout and others had average careers or pretty good careers a couple were flops um but you kind of get a great mix in there but i wanted to know more and so this is the result of my questions and answering my own questions you mentioned bryce harper and mike trout who are some of the other players that you uh, mentioned in the book 
Well, um, uh, Joe Pepitone, Roger Repose, Rick Reichardt, Bobby Mercer, Steve Whitaker, Bill Robinson, uh, Clint Hurdle, Kurt Gibson, Greg Jeffries. So uh, quite, quite a, a number of familiar names. And maybe there's one or two that uh, people have not heard of, but most of them are familiar because they were, they got a lot of publicity for supposedly being the next Mickey Mantle. Yeah, I think Bob, you mentioned Bobby Mercer. I think the parallels between him and Mickey Mantle, both from Oklahoma, and you know, Bobby Mercer was an outstanding player. I mean, he didn't live up to the, you know, the, the Mickey Mantle status, but I think he had a pretty good career with not only with the Yankees, but you know, with with the Cubs and the Giants. Yeah, uh, uh, Mercer had a good career, and as I say, he probably maximized his talent. And it was a little unfair to compare him to Mantle, as it was unfair to a lot of these players, because um, Mercer wasn't as strong as Mantle, didn't have as much power, didn't have as much speed. But like you say, because he was from Oklahoma, because he was a shortstop that was converted to an outfielder, um, he got uh, compared to Mantle rather quickly. And Mercer, like many of these players, he told reporters, I am not the next Mickey Mantle. And, of course, reporters didn't want to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> they just kept promoting him as the next Mickey Mantle. And none of these prospects or none of these players ever sought the next Mickey Mantle title because it, once they were tagged with that, it was an albatross for them. It created uh, really undue uh, pressure and expectations. Uh, Mercer had a very good career. I think he's a five-time All-Star, um, but not in Mano's class. But those who really knew Mercer never really expected that he would uh, be able to achieve what Mano did. Yeah. Now, you write a lot about the curse of talent and the burden of potential. Explain that. Well, uh Ken Brett, who's a pitcher from the, in the major league, said uh, the worst curse in life is unlimited potential. And when you think about that, is that when you have the talent, um, people start to put expectations on you. And those expectations many times are unrealistic. And the point is, is that expectations serve others goals serve the individual players so i'll give you an example when mantle came up and mantle was like 20 or 21 years old well he was 19 when he came up but in like his second season jerry coleman who was a former yankee said mantle ought to be able to hit 80 home runs and bat 400 well you and i know that that would be virtually impossible for anybody yeah. to do but those were the tremendous expectations. Uh, they expected Mantle not to just to be a great player, but maybe the greatest player of all time. And um, so you have to deal with that. And when you get those high expectations, players tend to put more pressure on themselves. And when they do that, they don't normally do better. They do worse when they put more pressure on themselves. So what happens, it leads to reduced confidence, anxiety, fear of failure, negative thinking, and all those things impact the player's performance. Were the expectations placed on the next Mickey Mantle players realistic? Uh, in most cases, no. <laughs> but 
you got to remember that uh, particularly the Yankees uh, were desperate to have the next Mickey Mantle. After all, they'd had 40 years of superstars, Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Joe DiMaggio, and Mickey Mantle. They did not want that string to end. And, of course, when you have a, a superstar, you get a lot of uh, promotional value out of it. Um, you could sell a lot of tickets. There's a lot of uh, hope and expectations. So in many cases, uh, it wasn't realistic. But it's not to say that these players didn't have a, a lot of talent. Um, they were all very talented. But uh, realistically, I mean, you weren't going to find too many Mickey Mantles. And um, I would tell you that right now, uh, Mike Trout is probably the next Mickey Mantle. But to find somebody that could do what Mantle did under the spotlight that he was under. You gotta remember Mantle came up, he was nineteen years old. Mm-hmm. He was playing in New York's which was the media capital world, so you had all the newspapers and television stations covering you. Um the Yankees were a powerhouse, so he was expected to continue that. And he was succeeding Joe DiMaggio. So uh most often, those were unrealistic expectations for anybody to be able to uh, come up to, to Mickey Mantle. Why do you think most teams, um, you know, especially the Yankees, uh, searching for that next Mickey Mantle? Well, I mean, we would all like to have a player of Mantle's caliber on our team. And like I say, uh, if you have somebody like that or even somebody you can promote like that, um, you'll You'll increase your attendance. You'll give your fans hope. And, you know, to have somebody in the lineup like that, I mean, you know that you're going to do pretty well. Um, To have somebody that can hit for average, hit for power, run, throw, field, uh, quite a combination. Yeah. I mean, I look back to, you know, look back to that 1950s, and it was a golden era of center fielders in New York with, with Mantle at the Yankees, Duke Snyder with the Brooklyn Dodgers, and Willie Mays at the New York Giants. But uh, you write that Mickey Mantle is the gold standard for superstars. Uh, why, why is that? Yeah, well, I think because um, Mantle uh, was able to achieve um, uh, in, all, in all these areas with power, average, defense. Uh, and, and we know that, you know, Mantle injured his knee in his rookie season, 1951, in the World Series. And if Mantle hadn't injured that knee, I mean, a lot of people say, what was he capable of doing? And a lot of people forget that Mickey Mantle didn't really become a superstar until he he was 24. He was in his fifth year. And mm-hmm. a lot of people had said, ah, he, he's never going to be a superstar. Uh, Joe DiMaggio, after year four, said, if he hasn't delivered by now, I don't know that he ever will. Well, in 1956, Mantle won the Triple Crown, and that was a great thing. And I think he was only the second Yankee to win a Triple Crown. But after he won the Triple Crown in '56, they they started to say, you know, maybe he'll win it again in '57. Well, nobody had ever done that. Yeah, back to back Triple Crowns, but they expected him to do that. But any anyway. He, he was the gold standard because he could do so much, and he was in the media capital, uh, you know, for baseball. Yeah, of course, the Yankees were so powerful back then, too, just dominating with uh, 
winning the World Series, it seems like every year. But uh, we're we're in an age now where teams have sports psychologists or mental skills coaches. I mean, what role do they play today? I mean, could could have Mantle handled uh, that kind of uh, help? Well, you know, uh, Ken, it's interesting that uh, the Cubs hired the first sports psychologist in 1938, but it was a short-lived experiment at the time. And teams pretty much uh, psychologically ignored their players up until the late 1980s. And that's when a book came out called The Mental Game of Baseball. And they started to pay more attention to it. And they started to hire guys to work with their players. And again, um, how do you handle that pressure? How do you practice? How do you, do you set goals? How do you take the right mindset into the game? How do you handle being in a slump? These are all things very important. I actually feel very sorry for most of the guys in the book because they didn't have a sports psychologist. Mm -hmm. They had to deal with all this stuff on their own, and it was very, very difficult. And today teams have the PR guys that will help kind of shield them from some of the pressure from the media, but – Back then, uh, the players didn't even have that. Um, So, I mean, they had PR guys, but they weren't protecting them against the media or at least shielding them a little bit from that pressure. Yeah, and I think a great example of that was Roger Maris and the home run uh, chase with uh, going for 61. uh, That's exactly right. If if Maris had had been uh, handled correctly, he, he would have done much, much better. And now today, every team... Every major league team, and I, I am sure some college teams, have a sports psychologist. Yeah. And it makes sense. Bob Tewksbury, who's a former pitcher and was a sports psychologist for several teams, wrote a book called 90% Mental. And that's what he says the game of baseball is, 90% mental. And you think about that. Well, how can you be ignoring that part of the game? And for years and years, teams did ignore the mental part of the game and players are much better off now because they have mental skills coaches. Yeah. Which of the uh, next Mickey Mantle players squandered their, the most talent? Well, uh, that's a good question, Ken. And I'll tell you two, uh, pretty sad stories. Uh, Joe Pepitone and Ruben Rivera, uh, Joe Pepitone. A lot of people know Joe. He's pretty flamboyant player and everything else like that. But, uh, uh, if you read Joe Pepitone's autobiography called Joe, you could have made us proud. Uh, you'll almost cry when you realize how much talent he had and how much talent he squandered. Um, Joe, if he said he was going to give a hundred percent, that made headlines because he was pretty much of a slacker, self-admitted slacker. Mm-hmm. And he was more interested in being the next Warren Beatty or the next Frank Sinatra rather than the next Mickey Mantle. And Joe says in his career, he had 219 home runs. He said, I should have hit 400. He batted 258. He said, I should have batted 298. A lot of people will tell you who played with Joe and saw Joe play. uh, He was a hall of fame potential player. It just uh, wasted his talent. And Ruben Rivera a lot of people don't remember Ruben, but he was with the Yankees for a couple of years. 
Then he went to San Diego, played for Cincinnati. But uh, Ruben hit 216 in nine years with five teams. Now, he's the cousin of Mariano Rivera. Mm -hmm. In May of 1995, Baseball America rated Ruben Rivera's second top prospect in the country. He was rated only behind Alex Rodriguez, but he was rated ahead of Chipper Jones, Derek Jeter, uh, Nomar uh, Garcia Parra, and Andrew Jones. Wow. And yet, though, he, he just... Uh, Resisted. He wasn't a very coachable player. He resisted a lot of instruction. Tony Gwynn tried tried to work with him when he was with the, with the with, when he was with the Padres, and he wouldn't listen to Tony Gwynn. Jeez. How so he had speed, power, <laughs> and defense, but uh, he just was not coachable, and consequently ended up with a very disappointing career. Yeah. If you can't listen to Tony Gwynn, you don't belong in baseball. Jeez. <laughs> Rivera said most of his problems stemmed from the fact that he tried too hard. Well, uh, he did. He didn't try uh, hard enough, yeah. was the truth, and he really didn't improve much. But Ruben liked to be out late at nights, and um, they actually hired somebody to be his um, uh, kind of like bodyguard to be with him uh, to try to keep him home at night and on all like that but anyway Ruben had a lot of talent but it never really materialized who handled the pressure the best uh Bryce Harper without a doubt uh, Bryce Harper was built for the sports spotlight from the age of nine and uh when he was nine he was on traveling teams with 13 year olds and he played uh on traveling teams in like four or five different states they flew to the games on the weekends. He played about 130 games a year. And he was cocky when he was 15. He was cocky when he was 19. Yeah. He's cocky today. But there's nobody who handles the pressure better than Bryce Harper. I will say, I, mean, I will agree with you to a point about his cockiness, especially when he was with the Nationals. But I think since he signed with the Phillies, I think he has become, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I was happy to sign him, but I just worried about him you know, being Mr. Mr. Ego guy, but he has been the opposite. He has been a team player, and what he did this season with an elbow injury, and then you know, especially what he did in, in the postseason, just was just incredible. I know the Phillies won't happen for like the first half of the year, but I mean, I've grown to, to love Bryce Harper, and I'm glad he's on the Phillies. And he, he's he, he, I, you and Ken, you know, he he really has always been a team player, yeah. and his his cockiness he has matured you know, over the years, and that's been good. And he he still has a cockiness, but, you know, it's from being good. Yeah. And he has it much more under control, but he has handled the pressure, in my mind, so much better than anybody else. And, you know, he has really embraced it and performed exceedingly well. Would you say he's become the next Mickey Man, or is there somebody else, or is there a combination of players? <laughs> Mike Trout is the next Mickey Mantle. Uh, if you look at the war for Trout and, and Bryce Harper, Trout's is double uh, what Harper's is. And um, Trout has probably been the best player in the uh, majors for the last 10 years. Um, you know, in his first five years, Mike Trout never finished lower than second in the MVP race. And when he was 20... That was his rookie year. 
he had a 10.5 war, which is wins above replacement. Mm -hmm. And he's the only player that young to have a war that high. And so um, the peers will tell you that uh, Trout has been the best player, and Bryce Harper would tell you that too. Now, Trout's now 31, and uh, he's going to be in decline, and he has been injured uh, over the last couple years. But if you look at it, uh, in my mind, Mike Trout is the next Mickey Mantle. Bryce Harper is second to Trout. And, uh, and Bryce Harper will end up very, very well when it's all over with. Um, this is an interesting thing about Harper. And at age 26, going into the age 26 season, Bryce Harper had 184 home runs. Schmidt, when he was going into his age 26 season, had 93. Yeah. And Schmidt ended up with 548. So you look at that and you say, you know, uh, you, you get Bryce Harper a few more years, he's going to have some pretty impressive statistics. Yeah, because remember that first season Mike Schmidt had it as a first full season in 1973. He batted less than 200. And then and look what happened to his uh, career. He ended up being a, being a Hall of Famer. So it, uh, it's yeah, some, some great stuff there. So, Barry, where can people find the book? Well, the simplest way is just to go on Amazon and just look for the search for the next Mickey Mantle. And I think that uh, if you're interested in baseball, you'll be interested to find out about uh, what happened to these players and maybe why they didn't uh, fulfill the potential that others thought they could. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, I've gotten a lot of good uh, early reviews of people who have read it. Um, before it got published and so i'm pretty excited about it and i think baseball fans will of all ages will will enjoy it well barry appreciate you coming on the podcast great catch up with you a lot of great memories of our days uh at the york daily record and uh i look forward to looking reading the book and uh, thanks for coming on well thank you ken that's barry sparks we'll be back to wrap up the podcast and have the latest winner in the daily gazette's you pick em football contest in just a moment you're listening to the parting shots podcast Hi, this is Daily Gazette photographer and sports writer Stan Hooty. I'd like to wish you a happy holiday season and a great 2023. Are you an enthusiastic sports fan? Want to have fun and get in on the action? Heck yes, that'd be awesome. Have great attention to detail? Want to stay active? Definitely. Want to give back to the student-athletes in your community? Obviously, yes. Then you'd make an excellent high school sports official. We need more officials in New York, because with no high school officials, there are no high school sports. Sign up today at highschoolofficials.com. Hello, this is Betsy Lynn from the Daily Gazette, and I come and work with all the wonderful people at the Gazette to help get our papers with our good content out to you every day. I would like to wish you all a very happy holiday season in a great 2023. Back to wrap up the podcast. The Week 14 winner in the Daily Gazette's You Pick'em Football Contest was Diane Green of Schenectady. Diane wins a $100 Hannaford gift card. Congratulations, Diane. The VIP winner was Scott Lucier of Capital Land GMC. I went 7-6 and six last week. I am 130-76-2. I still trail You Pick'em leader Andrew Krauss by a game. My Gazette colleague Adam Schinder went 9-4. and four. He is 
83-2. and two. And, of course, Andrew Krauss is with Glenville Beverage. I'll announce the winner of the You Pick'em Football Contest, and that winner's name will appear in Thursday's Daily Gazette. To play in the contest, go to dailygazette.com and click on the You Pick'em Football Matter. Keep checking out dailygazette.com and the print edition for the latest updates in news and sports on how COVID-19 is affecting us in the capital region. I want to thank all the doctors, nurses, and first responders who are dealing with this situation. We appreciate the job you are doing in this difficult time. If you have not gotten vaccinated, please do so. Do it for yourself, do it for your family, and do it for your friends. That wraps up another edition of the Party Shot Podcast. I want to thank Tim Healy and Barry Sparks for coming on the show. Next week, ESPN Radio's Freddie Coleman will join me to talk about a variety of sports topics. If you have questions or comments about the podcast, email to me at shot, that's S-C-H-O-T-T, at dailygazette.com. Follow me on Twitter at Slapshots. The views expressed on the Parting Shots podcast are not necessarily those of the Daily Gazette Company. The Parting Shots podcast is a production of the Daily Gazette Company. I'm Daily Gazette Sports Editor Ken Shot. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. From the Parting Shots podcast studio in Schenectady, New York, Good day, good sports.